was a father of four daughters, you got to warn a guy that you're going to have a dad baptize a daughter right before I get up to preach. A mess over there. That was beautiful. Well, it seems like forever ago that the year 2020 began. In retrospect, we were all too excited for it to happen. Do you remember how it began? Protesters filling the streets of Hong Kong. Australia on fire, like all of it on fire. 46 million acres burned in Australia in what has become known as the Black Summer of Australia. Tensions in the Persian Gulf after a U.S. drone attack killed uh, General Soleimani. And then Iran retaliated by sending ballistic missiles to a U.S. base and shooting down a Ukrainian aircraft carrier. A second world war broke out in Libya, prompting Turkey to send troops across the border. A helicopter crash right here in the USA that killed nine people, including Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna. The World Health Organization declaring this thing called a novel coronavirus to be a public health emergency of international concern. That, my friends, was only January of 2020. And we could go on, couldn't we, of walking through month by month of the things that we've dealt with in this calendar year. The USA has somehow had bubonic plague, Ebola, and a Sahara sandstorm in the year 2020. There's been stock market scares, political infighting. There's been escalation of racial tensions here in the United States following the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, followed by both peaceful uh, protesting as well as senseless rioting. And of course, to top all of that off, the coronavirus continues to explode and spread here in the United States. This is 2020. Question, how do you as Christians stand firm in a year like this? How do you live with uh, confidence? How do you experience a, a, a daily hopefulness in the turbulence and pains and afflictions and trials and frustrations and persecutions and disappointments and loss of this life? Well, this, in a sense, is why the Apostle Peter wrote what we call the book of 1 Peter. It's a letter to Christians in his day who were in a very scary situation. They, they were facing pressure, they were facing persecution, they were facing uncertainty in their lives of following Christ, and Peter wrote to them, as we'll see in our passage this morning, he wrote to them so that they could know what it means to stand firm in God's grace. That's what I want us to consider this morning in our time in God's Word what does it look like to stand firm in God's grace? So if you want a big idea of what we'll look at, it's this stand firm in God's grace. He will exalt and establish you. Stand firm in God's grace. He will exalt and establish you. Our text is 1 Peter chapter 5. If you have a copy of God's word, please make your way there. 1 Peter chapter 5 will be in verses 6 through 12 together this morning. 
by way of an outline, this is what we'll consider these two things. Number one, be humble. God will exalt you. Number two, be watchful. God will establish you. Be humble. God will exalt you. Be watchful. God will establish you. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 10. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Number one, be humble. God will exalt you. Our passage that we just read begins with Peter drawing a conclusion. He says, humble yourselves, therefore. Humble yourselves, therefore. There's a conclusion because he just gave a charge in the passage that comes right before this, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. He just gave a charge to the elders of these churches to whom he's writing to shepherd their flocks in in a certain way. And he gave a charge to the members of those churches to be subject to the elders in a certain way. And then he says, to all of you, I say this, clothe yourselves in humility. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That's verse 5. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. The image is, is that Christians are to be clothed in, draped in, covered by humility. So that when somebody sees you, they see Christ's likeness because we are covered in humility just like Jesus was. Just, just like the fan of a, a sports team might wear a, a shirt or a jersey or a jacket or a, a hat with the team's logo on it in a, in a way of identifying with that team. You could say, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a University of Memphis fan. I'm, I'm a Memphis Grizzlies fan. You're, you're clothed in that, showing that you are on that team. You are supporting that team. In the same way, we are to be clothed with humility. We put it on in such a way, humility, that it identifies us and typifies us as followers of Jesus. So when we get to our passage, so, so we see there in verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 5 that, that God supports such character. Because you're, you're, you're actually wearing his team jersey. You're on team Jesus. And so when you're clothed in humility, the world and everybody around you can look at you and say, that person is on team Jesus. And so God supports that. And it says there that he gives grace to the humble. The proud, on the other hand, he opposes. And so verse 6, when Peter, he, he draws a conclusion in our passage. Right? As we began reading, he draws a conclusion. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. This is what Team Jesus does. Team Jesus is clothed in humility. So you guys, therefore, church, 
Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God because that's what we do when we're on Team Jesus. Now, everybody should have this question on your minds right now. You, sh- you should be thinking, how? Right, I'm in. You, I'm sold. I, I'm Team Jesus. I'm on the team. I, I'll wear the je- What does it look like? I mean, that, that sounds great to say, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Uh, what does that look like practically for me to do that? I'm, I'm in. I want to do it. Help me know what it looks like exactly practically to do that well. I hope that's your question by this point. Because that's the exact very next thing that Peter does in verse 7. Look at verse 7. This is exactly what he's explaining. You see where Peter says, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, what's interesting there is that casting your anxieties is what's called a, a participle of instrument. It's not the main verb in, this, in this, this phrase here. The main verb is humble yourselves. Peter's trying to communicate, humble yourselves. But then what he does is he drops this participle of instrument, meaning this is the way that you're going to do that thing. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Well, how do I do that? He says, casting your anxieties on him. Casting your anxieties, it, 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 it tells us how the main verb will be accomplished. Casting your anxieties is the means by which you are able to humble yourselves. So church, you, you want to clothe yourselves in humility like Peter is saying team Jesus does? You want to do that well? You want practical humility in your life? Peter says, cast your anxiety on God. That's how you humble yourself. Now, isn't that, And that is, that is just packed with meaning. That is loaded with freight when you think about it. Because if, if you see what he just did there, he made a connection between anxiety and pride. He made a connection between worry and pride. He made a connection between fear and pride. Now, when we think of the opposite of anxiety, we, we tend to think of, well, the opposite of anxiety is, 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 is calmness. It's it's peace. It's, it's tranquility. That, that's the opposite of anxiety. And, and sure, that, that's, a, that's a fair enough way for us to consider the, the, the topic and to think about the opposite of anxiety. But in another way, in another very real sense, the opposite of anxiety is humility. The opposite of anxiety is, is humility because it is a confession that the thing that I'm really worried about is it's not really about me. And so to, to get up and to speak in front of people, if I'm overcome with anxiety, it, it, the, typically the reason is because, man, I really want you guys to think well of me. I, I want you to walk out of here and say, man, that bombed. I want you to walk out, I want you to walk out and say, oh, that, was, that was decent. That was good. We, we, but if I get worked up with nerves and fear and anxiety because of that, it's because I think it's about me and it's not about me. The opposite of anxiety is humility. It's not about me. It's about the Lord. It's about God. It's about his word. It gives me a great sense of peace. And standing behind God's word and delivering it. We, there's a connection here because the, the, the thing that we are really desiring sometimes, we have to make a confession that the thing that I really want won't ultimately be secured by my strength or my ability. So there's a connection between our fear and our worry and our anxiety and, and pride and humility. I think this is a really relevant word for us in midst of the coronavirus and indeed in midst of 2020 as we look at all the things that have afflicted us and caused us concern this year. This virus and this year 
is providing all of us with a really good opportunity to humble ourselves. Giving his line of, of reasoning so far. He's giving us a really good uh, opportunity to humble ourselves by casting our anxieties on God. Now listen, Jesus knew this connection as well. You remember in Matthew 6, and Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is, is not life more than food? Is not the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Aren't you more valuable than the birds of the air? Of course you are. Don't worry about that kind of stuff. And then listen to this. This is Matthew 6, verse 27. Jesus says, And which of you, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Jesus knows that in our anxious states, in our worrisome states, in our fearful states, there is a belief deep down in here somewhere that we think the lengthening of our days is ultimately up to us. Jesus knows we think that. That's why he says it. We're anxious because we think that by, I, I think that by my worry and by my control that I, can, that I can affect the lengthening of a life. Now listen, I'm not saying we don't take precautions Right? Trust God and lock your car. <laughs> uh, trust God and wash your hands. Trust God and, and wear a mask. As I'm not saying we don't take precautions. Indeed, I think the precautions that we take are the means that God will use to, to, to protect us and to care for us. I think there's a connection there. So be wise and be full of faith as well. The, the hope, security, confidence of the, of the Christian isn't ultimately in masks or quarantines or hand washing or locking our house, though we do those things, but it's in God. We trust that our lives are in his hands. And look at verse 7 again. We're, we're not simply trusting the cold hands of fate. We're humbling ourselves before God by casting our anxieties on God, and it's a God if you look there in verse 7, it's a God who loves us. He cares for us. He knows what is best for us, and he will give us what is good. And the end result is seen in verse 6, exaltation. Exaltation. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, that, that phrase there, proper time, uh, due time, your Bible may say, literally in Greek, it just says in time, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God, in time he may exalt you. That can be taken one of two ways. Uh, one way that you can understand that is, is that in, temporally, in this life, in due time, God will exalt you when he's ready to exalt you, meaning he, he will give you a, a platform, he will lift you up, uh, he, he, he will do so when the time is right in this life. That, that's one way to take that. The other way to take that is that when he says in time or in the proper time or in due time, that is actually referring to the end times. Humble yourselves in this life and God will exalt you on that day, the day when Christ returns. Now listen, both teachings are, are true biblically considered. We humble ourselves before God and he lifts us up in this life when he pleases and we humble ourselves before God and if we're in Christ and have repented and of our sins and trusted in him, he will lift us up in that day as well. So both of those things are true biblically considered, 
But given Peter's end times focus throughout this letter, if you read through the book of 1 Peter, uh, given the, the suffering and the persecution that this church was going through, it, it seems likely to me that he's referring to in that day, on that final day, end times, on the, at the return of Christ, uh, Christ will exalt those who have humbled themselves and who have trusted in him. And this is no surprise, is it? This is the path of glory walked by Christ as well. This concept is why Christianity has good news. Paul explained it this way in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. So this storyline that Peter is walking us through, this is why we have good news. In the same way, Peter is saying, listen, humble yourselves, casting your anxieties on God, and he will exalt you. Why? Because that's the road of Christ as well. That, that Christ humbled himself, that any of us who repent our sins and trust in him by his humbling ourselves and taking God's wrath and dying on the cross in our place as our substitute, he bore that so that by our trusting in him, we might have life and we might rise to newness of life as well. So Peter says, that's the story. That's the story of the Bible. That is what we are to be doing in troubling times, is humbling ourselves by casting our anxieties, trusting God to exalt us. So first evangelical church, how do you, how do you stand firm in 2020? Clothe yourselves in humility by casting your anxieties on a good God who loves you and cares for you and will exalt you. Second, be watchful. So, so be humble and he will exalt you. Number two, be, be watchful and he will establish you. Peter's wrapping up this letter that he's written to these churches. And if you read the whole thing, you would note that a, a theme throughout this whole letter has been endurance and standing firm in the midst of suffering and, and persecution and insults and, and, and really just pressure for following Christ. So he encourages them in verse 8, if you look there, he encourages them again in verse 8 to be, to be sober-minded and watchful. Now I say he encourages them again because uh, back earlier in the letter, in 1 Peter 1 verse 13, he says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. And then here in our passage as well, chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded and watchful. He really is, is driving home this point throughout the, the letter that it, what is called, fr uh, called, called from us is, is a sobriety, a sober-mindedness in this life. A, a drunk person loses touch with reality. They are numbed, dulled to reality. They are blissfully distracted. Maybe we numb ourselves through entertainment, through busyness, through busyness at work, through achievement in our industry. 
Maybe we, we numb ourselves by, by, by games or social media or, or actual f- food and drink, actual physical comforts. Peter calls for a sobriety. Don't, don't numb yourselves. Don't, don't numb yourselves to the reality that is around you so that you are not aware and watchful. Maybe just a, a side application as you reflect on this passage later today is, is in what ways do I numb myself so that I'm blissfully unaware and dulled to the spiritual realities that are around me? What are my favorite ways to do that? Well, why be sober and watchful? Because verse 8, if you look there, you have an adversary. The, the name Satan itself means adversary. You have an adversary, the adversary, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, th- this image, if you were the, the original recipients of this, this image is vivid. When we think of a lion, we, we, you know, we think of the time that I was at the Memphis Zoo and the lion came out and roared and everybody kind of cheered. Like, oh, it's great. Look at the cute lion behind the big fence. These Christians have likely seen lions with human blood dripping from their mouths. And so Peter writes to them, he says, you have an enemy prowling around like a roaring lion. And they would think, oh man, yeah, we do. There's a call for sobriety and for watchfulness. Satan's roar is persecution. Satan's roar is fear of disease. Satan's roar is his sowing division over political issues. Satan's roar, he would love nothing more than to scatter the flock and devour us through pains and sufferings and trials and difficulties and disagreements and differences of opinions and things that would cause us to wane in our devotion to the Lord. So Peter says, you want to know how to stand firm? I'm writing so that you know the true grace of God and that you might be able to stand firm in it. You want to know how you do that? You humble yourselves by casting your anxieties on God and you're watchful. You're sober-minded. I wonder if Peter had Jesus' words ringing in his mind as he wrote these words. Watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Remember the audience for those words? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter may be writing to these Christians to get them to do what he failed to do before Jesus was arrested and crucified. Be watchful. Be sober-minded. There's an enemy prowling around. Well, what does that look like? What does that look like for us to be watchful and to be sober-minded and to do this? Well, I think it's, it, we admit that there's a threat and, and we know where our weaknesses are. That's a big part of of what it means to be watchful. We admit that there's a threat. We don't walk around like we don't have an enemy. We realize that we do have an enemy, and we recognize where our weaknesses are. So church, ask yourself, do, do, do you tend to sin with your mouth, with your actions, with your with your attitude, in your beliefs? Do you tend to sin when you're alone or in groups? Do you tend to sin when things are going really well in your life and you're prone to pride and self-sufficiency? Or do you tend to sin when things are really hard and you're, you're struck with doubt and despair? Be watchful. Be Satan aware and self aware. You realize that you have an enemy prowling around and that you have weaknesses that he's likely going to go after. 
Well, Peter gives a second command there in verse 9. He says, resist him. So we're watchful, but we're not just watchful, we're resistant. This means that, 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 that we're, we're, we're actively resisting, we're actively fighting, we're, we fight against sin, we battle against disbelief. Well, how do we resist? I love what Peter does here. He gives us three elements, really, to explain our resistance in verses 9 through 10. We resist by faith, we resist in community, and we resist for a season. You see those there, we resist by faith, we resist in community, and we resist for a season. He says in verse 9, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So we resist by faith. We resist firm in our faith. Uh, The Apostle Paul famously wrote at the end of the book of Ephesians about the spiritual armor that we have as Christians. And and remember that the the shield that we have, he says, is the shield of faith with which we uh, extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. And so when we resist in these seasons of doubt, when we resist in seasons of despair and and, and scary seasons and times where we're prone to worry and, 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 and see 2020, when we resist in these seasons, we resist with the shield of faith. That we, we, we know who God is. We know that he is good and that he does what is good. We know that he loves us and that he never changes. We know, we know that is true even when our feelings tell us it's not true. Even when our emotions tell us it's not true. That is true. That he is God. That Jesus is on the throne. That he still reigns. And we can stand firm with our faith because we know who he is and who he has said that he is. And he has proven that to us. He has proven his love and his care for us, the Bible says, in that he sent Christ to die for us. That's the down payment. That's how you know. Even when you look around, you're like, man, I don't feel it this week. You know it because he has shown us that in Christ. He gave the the biggest thing he could ever give. He would certainly take care of us. And so when we resist, we resist by faith. Even when we don't feel like it, we choose faith and we choose trust and we choose hope because we know he's good. So friends, resist by faith. And resist in community. Resist in community. That's what he says in verse 9. He says, we know that others are experiencing the same kinds of suffering. And this isn't, this isn't like a, you know, misery loves company thing. Well, things are horrible here, but they're horrible over there too. So I guess we're all in the same boat. That's not what he's talking about. There, there isn't an, an ecclesiological camaraderie that, that Peter is hitting on here that helps us fight against sin. It is an encouragement to us, or it should be an encouragement to us to know that there are believers around the world facing similar attacks and persecutions and ill treatment and diseases and viruses and affliction, and they are holding firm. I have a buddy right now locked in Xinjiang, China, in a, in a, uh, in a camp, and I trust that he is holding firm to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And when I think of that brother, I think, man, I can go through whatever. 
There is an ecclesiological camaraderie that helps us fight sin. But you say, hey, they, they face the coronavirus over there, man, they're still loving Jesus. I can do the same thing. They, they face racial tensions over there, and they're still loving Jesus. How can we walk through that same thing together? They, they face these same persecutions and, and, and uh, people saying bad things about the church and about Jesus. And they, they face that in that country or over in that town. And they're standing firm, and they're still loving Jesus. We can do the same thing. Peter says, resist Satan, firm in your faith, he's good, and resist him in community, knowing that other people have gone through the same things and still love Jesus as well. We still know that he is king and the gospel is worth it. It's encouraging to us. But friends, it's not just a global camaraderie that we have in the church, it's also a local camaraderie that we have in the church. Think about that lion image again. Satan prowls around like a roaring, roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now note, it doesn't say that he's simply seeking someone, does it? I mean, Satan sees people everywhere. He doesn't have to seek people. It doesn't even say that he's seeking Christians. Satan knows where the Christians are. He doesn't have to go find them. What's it say? He is seeking someone to devour. You've seen the nature shows. Who do the lions go after? The, the, the loner, the, the straggler, the one with a limp, the little guy in the back. Now, being the little guy in the back isn't the problem. Being, being alone isn't the problem. Having a limp isn't the problem. It's, it's, it's having a limp and going away from the pack. It's, it's being the small guy and straying from the shepherd. That's the problem. That's when the lion's going to pick you off. Those are the ones he devours. This is why the author of Hebrews warns against the neglecting of corporate worship and corporate gathering of Christians. Hebrews 10.25, he says, don't neglect the gathering together, but encourage one another, just as we're doing here this morning. Earlier in the book of, of Hebrews, Hebrews 3.13, he, he says, encourage one another so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I think one of the great dangers of this virus in our country, as I, I'm sure you're well aware, in addition to all the, the, the very real dangers over our physical health and our physical safety, is the spiritual danger that it does to us. Of, of not being able to be around each other and encourage one another face to face. Now listen, God can and God does sustain us in those seasons when we're not able to do that. He, he does and he will. But the, the normal means that he uses to encourage the church is, is each other. It's the gathering it's worship, and that's why, that's why I love what you guys are doing here this morning, right? We, we'll social distance, we'll wear masks, but we're here. And we're, it was encouraging for me to hear your muffled voices. That's an encouragement to me. And so my church in China, when we went through the coronavirus, we, we were there when it hit. And uh, the encouragement that we kept giving to our church is the same encouragement I would give everywhere. Is, is do what you can. right? We, we would encourage our church members to go on a walk, even a socially distanced walk with another church member, even through masks, but just seeing each other and praying for one another, singing or reading scripture or doing whatever you can, whether it's in person where you can walk around or on Zoom or, or coming and gathering here and socially distancing. And with, that is good for your souls. 
That is one of the ways we resist Satan. If we neglect that, we do so at our own peril. Again, be wise. Don't do anything illegal. But, but we have to uh, press into this ecclesiological camaraderie that will help us resist him. Firm in our faith. And then the final thing here is that we resist for a season. We resist for a season. Peter says in verse 10 that after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I don't don't think we need to make a huge distinction between those four words and kind of parse out what each of them mean. He's basically just saying that you will be fully, finally, eternally secure after you have suffered a little while. Meaning you're not going to avoid suffering. (laughs) We'll all have some claw marks on us. We're all going to have some blood on our shirt. But nothing can ultimately hurt you. Nothing can ultimately hurt us. The the suffering and pain and trials and insults and fears of this world will, will be temporary. After we've suffered a little while, God will call you to eternal glory and establish you there. To him, verse 11, be dominion forever and ever. A little temporary suffering now, eternal glory to come. Let's conclude in verse 12. He says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. First, Ivan, you want to stand firm in the midst of all the chaos of 2020. Humble yourselves before a God who cares for you by casting your anxieties on him, and he will exalt you. Be watchful and resist Satan by faith in community for a season, and he will establish you by his eternal glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray for for the, the, the strength and the encouragement that comes by your spirit and through your people. We know from your word uh, that this is the way that, that you encourage us and build us up. You, you do it through your, your presence in our lives. You do it through your word that we read together and that we hear preach. You do it through the singing that we do together. And so, God, we pray that we would be diligent towards our uh, watchfulness against our enemy. It would be diligent to encourage one another and build one another up, even if that's virtually for a season or even if that's socially distanced for a season, that we would uh, be diligent towards uh, encouraging and, and fanning the flames of our faith, that our affections for Jesus would grow more and more. Help us to be watchful. Help us to be humble. We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.